The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Welcome to Conversations from the Iowa Writers Workshop. I'm Keisha Lynn. Alan Gerganis is probably best known for his novel, Oldest, Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All. This was his 1989 debut. He is also the author of two collections, White People and The Practical Heart, and another novel titled Plays Well with Others. He won a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2006. He was a student of and is a visiting professor at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Alan Gerganis, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. How does it feel to be back in Iowa? Oh, it's sort of like stepping into a warm bath in a cold season. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love it. I didn't expect that it would be um, as consistent with my last couple of experiences mm -hmm. as, as I found it. The students are very exciting to me, very different from each other, but uh, kind to each other, which I respond to. I, I like that very much. Uh, the, the setting itself is much improved from the English philosophy building where mm -hmm. we used to sit cross-legged in the hall waiting mm -hmm. to be talked to. But it's, uh, it's reassuring to see the pattern continue, to see the influence that the workshop has had for good or bad. I think there are a lot of very bad imitations of it out mm -hmm. there in the world. Something about the initial belief in the institution, the original design. When you think about 1922, mm -hmm. the first creative dissertation, you realize what a pioneer in education the University of Iowa truly is. See, I remember hearing about the, the 70s, and I want to talk to you, I'm going to talk to you about that in a, in a minute, actually, um, that the Iowa Writers Workshop has gotten many different types of reviews, good and bad, how competitive, bloodthirsty, all kinds of things. But I'd like to talk about, we can start with your experience at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and actually, I want to talk a little bit about how you came to writing, which I thought was a very interesting story about, you know, the time you spent on the USS Yorktown in the late 60s during the war. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I went to art school and the University of Pennsylvania uh, for one year. And then I, I, I was having a good time, but I, I just didn't feel like I, it was my real life. You know, you, you're waiting to be blown out of the water when you're 18 years old. It has to be gigantic to get your attention. So I very stupidly stopped school at a time when there was something called the draft. And... Um, as a result, I was tried for draft evasion because I didn't want to go oh in country and kill people or, mm -hmm. in my case, be killed. Mm -hmm. I, I knew, Keisha, immediately I arrived in the country, <laughs> I was going to get a bullet at yeah. the airport walking down the ramp. Mm -hmm. So I, my parents were Republican and, and, like a lot of people in 1966, thought that the war was a policing action that would be over in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Famous last words. Right. We've seen that before. Absolutely. And uh, so I was on my own writing essays about pacifism, trying to get my preacher to testify for me. And the outcome of the trial was that I could either go to federal prison for six and a half years or join some branch of the military. Yeah. And I joined the Navy because I'd read Conrad and Melville. 
and I thought it would be a nice clean death. The fish would, you know, lick my bones, and I wouldn't be in a ditch with bamboo in my back. Yeah. Uh, so, as a result, I was no longer a painter. I was on a ship with 4,000 other guys, and there was a library on the ship, which was about as big as this room. Right. And it had um, books, and I became so bored that for the first time in my life, I read books. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a painter, I went to museums, but I thought, how could I replicate this painting? And I did the same thing with these books. I was, I mean, the beautiful innocence of youth, you don't know how difficult it really is. If we knew how difficult life is, we would never get out of bed. We wouldn't get out of bed, would The we? cradle would have many <laughs> fat old people in no, it. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> So I just started imitating Dickens, imitating Jane Austen, and uh, it became a kind of obsession. And it saved my life psychically because it was a very stressful, difficult time. Sure. No privacy, no dignity. And it made me understand, you know, what, in a, in a small way, what it was to be enslaved, mm -hmm. to be on a ship against my own wishes and principles in the service of um, economic forces beyond my control. Right. And writing gave me that margin of, of, of insight and, and uh, a, a, the ability to shape one's own destiny and to see into oneself and, and to organize the world that I needed and it really saved my life. So that was the beginning. time you spent at Iowa happened to be in the 70s. And you graduated in 1974, is that That's right? That's right. Okay, and you were there, well, you were there with some great teachers and you were there with great writers, great classmates as well. I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, your experience with your teachers, Stanley Elkin and John, of course, John Cheever. It, it, it happened that um, in response to personal illness, I mean, this is, it's, a, it's an odd, beautiful thing that Workshop does. It sort of Give me your tired, your poor. I mean, right. <laughs> uh, these distinguished writers at a particular pass. Uh, I later realized that Stanley Elkin had just been diagnosed with MS. Mm. And though he was on sabbatical, he came here to teach to earn money for his family because he knew that he was going to be debilitated. And um, this is all the stuff that you see in retrospect. He was very physically clumsy in class. He was always dropping the chalk or the change was falling out of his pockets. We thought he was hilarious. We thought it in a way uh, that it was almost like a stand-up thing that he was doing. And now I realize it was, you know, he was just already beginning to lose control. He was a genius teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the most consistently correct critic I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And the joy and terror of having your work submitted to such a mind uh, was was amazing, and it cleared the classroom almost immediately. We went from, you know, yeah. twenty five to eight, <laughs> but we we were the righteous remnant, baby. We were the I hung on. <laughs> Only the ones who had strength stayed right. in there with Stanley, ah. and uh, he was a great force for the good, mm -hmm. and a very funny man, and a very odd man in a great way. Mm -hmm. Cheever uh, was a year younger than I am now. I'm sixty two. He had had a huge heart attack and, and had been unable to stop drinking. 
and smoking. He was, a, he, you know, whatever, whatever was available in terms of stimulation, there you will find him. Uh, but he and his family had essentially washed their hands of him, and, and you can't really blame them. You got a job at Iowa, go there, live in the University Hotel and see if, you know, how long you live right. without us. And so he was in a very isolated circumstance, though he was very lauded and, and acknowledged. Um, it was at a time when his work was not um, thought as highly of as it is now. Uh, experimental fiction was everything. Mm -hmm. And I felt um, very, uh, very sorry for him in a way, because I saw what it must be like to be in your 60s and alone at the Iowa House, mm -hmm. heaven forbid. Uh, yeah. So Maybe. Cheever conducted the class like a cocktail party. It was a, a light conversation with very broad New England A's, you know. Uh, he would say, there's a certain kind of story that's no longer permissible to write, the story that begins, it was one of those mornings when people sat around and said, I drank too much last night. <laughs> now, Keisha, give us an example. <laughs> you know, oh and, my God. and a lot of my brilliant Midwestern uh, classmates were terrified of not only him, but of this mode of address. <laughs> I had gone to school in the South and the East, and I was a talking Gemini, so I, I, I felt right at home. And um, it was the beginning of, again, a great friendship and a great lasting connection. You also had uh, some really interesting classmates. You were there at the same time as Dennis Johnson, Ron Hansen, T.C. Boyle. Um, what was that like? I mean, we talk about, in the workshop, we talk about you know the, your best readers and best friends as you're struggling through what you, you call in, in the collection of workshop, the Iowa Winters Workshop. You know, What was that like being in the company of such talented writers? Well, of course, you don't know at the time how relatively good they are. Jane Smiley was also in that class, and, and Richard Bausch. And it's, it's an amazing group of people. Uh, it did seem like a very exciting time, but of course, I think it always does. Um, and uh, we were um, inciting each other to our best game. I think if you if you could hold your own on the court with with Federer for even one set, uh, you would probably pay play the best tennis you will ever play, play in the rest of your life. And there's something about having um, a person in the room. Uh, who's extremely gifted and very committed. And that's, I mean, there's always this double element. Um, I look at my students now and I think there's nothing standing in the way of their being amazing writers mm -hmm. and making a real contribution. But, you know, there really are things standing in the way. And one of the things that I try to do for my present students is say, what is holding you back? If you are married to a man or a woman who says, why are you always in that other room? You know, uh, I'm jealous of your work. Then you can get unmarried so quickly. <laughs> and I'm a cranky old bachelor. Yeah. And I ain't let nothing get in the way of my work. Right. I'm telling you. Right. I've, and I've, I've had some beautiful obstacles that I've thrown the hell <laughs> under the bus. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, you know, I say to them, you know, having children is difficult. Uh, my my Alan's form of birth control is 
how many children do you want? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Publish that many books first and then start having the then babies. Then think about it, exactly. And if you can't wait, maybe, you know, you should think about what your, why you want to do this and what parenthood really means. Uh, authorship also has its rights and, and its, its position of importance in your life. So um, for us, uh, starting out, it was um, an amazing excitement and adventure. And... Uh, for me, it's it's been very thrilling to see the success of my classmates. I mean, and not completely, but for the most part, all of us are extremely happy for each other. It's wonderful because we know where we were. We we remember, you know, the sixty dollar a month apartment, and and um, it's it's very powerful to open any magazine and you see the names of your classmate in almost every magazine you yeah. open. Yeah. So it's, it's been a great experience. Outside of Iowa City, and you know, we have people come here all the time and they're always amazed at you know, what kind of community this is, right? The support you get for writing and for literature, whereas out in the world it's a little more difficult. You have to find yourself justifying what are you doing here? What kind of, you know, it's nice to be able to come to a place where people are serious about literature and people are serious about their writing. Absolutely. It's a given, and not only at the workshop uh, in the university, but the community. Absolutely. Uh, Prairie Lights has a kind of refining effect on the community, and thank God it's still here. Oh, yeah. And uh, so many amazing bookshops like it have, have died. So I respect Jan and her staff so much for, for holding the standard. Um, but it's, it's, I think part of it, the power of the place is its isolation. Uh, you'd think that Columbia University would have the best creative writing program because they're in New York and so forth and so on. That's the problem. That is the problem, absolutely. There's so many choices and, you know, there's so many parties and, yeah. and uh, so many ways of getting in drug trouble and mm -hmm. sex trouble and shopping you know, trouble. Shopping trouble. <laughs> now, we, now we're getting That's down. That's my danger, right? Now we're getting down to it. Yeah. Um, but um, I haven't been moved to shop anywhere but thrift shops you here. Go. You know, I've got some. <laughs> you like it? Yeah, um, I am. <laughs> so, so it's mostly about the work. And it's moving to see kids who were admitted in this most recent uh, wave coming to shop the schools, mm -hmm. you know. And you know that they're going to Austin and uh, Ann Arbor and New York, and they're being wined and dined. And it's very hard to explain to them at a so-so Mexican restaurant in Iowa City why this is the place. I said to the last group, I said, I wish I had a talent meter that would register for you who is in this classroom right now. Because mm -hmm. these kids are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, and for me, it's very moving. Now I see what Cheever and Elkin saw in me when I had a you know 29 inch waist mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and was a little slip of a thing. Uh, and I feel very protective of the kids in that way. Anne Patchett was one of your students, and she wrote in um, a book I have called Why I Write, she said, I write because Alan Gorganis taught me to. And this was at Sarah Lawrence when you taught there. And she said in her essay that you had them write a story a week. Is that right? It's true. Like, how? I'm imagining this, because I took fiction classes as undergrad. I don't know if I could have done a story a week. But you had a, there was a method to this. There was a reason There's a method. For mm -hmm. one thing, and this is... My, my being a glutton for punishment, I voluntarily taught twice a week instead of once, wow. so I could, everybody could get 
covered. Um, especially Ann Patchett, you know, gives me a huge amount of credit, which is typical of what a dear person she is. Mm -hmm. She was a born writer. She was born with a pen in her hand. And um, she arrived as a freshman at Sarah Lawrence, um, already disciplined, already understanding how to revise. And her path was to say, I can write a story a week, but you know what? I would rather write one story over and over every week until I have made it perfect. Uh -huh. And she did that as a freshman, and she published it in the Paris Review and won every prize in the world. I mean, she was already launched she uh, as, a, yeah. as a serious worker. And she would say, what, you know, you, you say you like every sentence now after you know, a year of working on one story. And, and suddenly you say, well, this is a little less good than the one beside it. Right. And so she brought every sentence up to that level. Mm -hmm. And um, so I feel, you know, I have my, my list of my former students, which is a kind of who's who of, of who's writing now and who's really interesting now. And they're all radically different voices. Um, Elizabeth McCracken, whom I taught at Iowa 20 years ago is now head of the creative writing department at, at University of Texas. Right. So we're we're going forth and multiplying. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's, it's very it's it's very exciting to think of my position from Grace Paley to Elkin to Cheever. And I say to my students here on the first day, this is your lineage. That's right. We have family lineage and we have writerly lineage. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to tell people that you were my students, mm. and I want you to be able to tell people that I was your teacher. Mm. And I take it very, very seriously. Yeah, and it's, again, that kind of validation that it can be hard to get. Um, people, you know, talk about the value of graduate programs, for example, and whether these are, whether these are valuable. They've, of course, proliferated in the last 30 years or so. But, you know, in the, in the hands of a good teacher, as you know, when you were here at Iowa, it can really help a writer grow and develop. No yeah. question. Yeah. You mentioned um, just some of the things you tell your students. Uh, do you think your philosophy of teaching has changed at all over the years? I mean, and then, you know, with undergraduate versus graduate, different schools, different, as you have learned and grown as a writer. I think I'm uh, a little less um, hard on the students than I used to be, which seems, seems like a, a sliding backwards. Mm -hmm. But what you realize, uh, in fiction especially, is that the great work that they're going to do is is years ahead. And this is one of the paradoxes of being a novelist, is a novelist is born at 40. Right, I saw that quote. It's and a great quote. <laughs> it's really true. I mean, the qualifications for being a novelist are you have to have had your heart broken at least three times mm -hmm. in three different situations mm -hmm. and survived it. <clears throat> and I, I don't want to say you have to have broken a few yourself, but... We've all done that accidentally and on purpose. And you have to believe that you're going to die. And the only way to do that is to help somebody else die. And um, it sounds like a, like a bloodshed box score that nobody wants to wrap up. But the <laughs> fact is, you know, uh, the AIDS epidemic uh, was my, you know, my, my, my education as a novelist. I had the experience of 85-year-olds when I was in my early 30s, mm -hmm. and I went to funerals four days a week. And um, it's a it was a horrible time, and I never thought I would survive. But it, I came out 
of the refiner's fire a very different person. And being with my parents when they each died was a transcendent experience Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I think every writer has to have exactly those experiences. I just think being alive on the surface of the planet for four decades is just uh, enough time to begin to notice what's around you and to see your your spiritual nature and your uh, communal nature and to try to figure out your position in relation to other people. And uh, 18, 19, 21 is a very egotistical age, and it should be. It's, it's the age of discovery. You don't expect the baby to say, and how are you, you who are warming my milk bottles? Right, exactly. You know, it's <laughs> like, I'm hungry, give it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, something deeper and more decent and, and more harrowing and, and more partaking of wisdom comes later in life. Mm-hmm. But I'm preparing the students uh, technically with an apparatus that will accommodate that experience, that larger uh, set of events when when it reaches them, as it inevitably will. I can't believe we are already out of time. Oh, well, we well, just got started. Not, I know, we just got started. I didn't get to talk about all this other stuff. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was a pleasure. Alan Gerganich's most famous novel is Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All. I'm Keisha Lynn. Thanks for watching Conversations from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.